Welcome back to Spoonful of Sugar. Today's episode on reproductive physiology will be recorded by Julie Eggleton. She's a future OBGYN and a current fourth-year medical student at the California North State University. Hope you enjoy. Hey, all you future doctors. Thanks for tuning in to Spoonful of Sugar, a podcast made for medical students by medical students to help the medicine go down. My name is Julie Eggleton. I'm a fourth-year student at California North State University, and I will be your host. Today, we'll be talking about reproductive physiology, focusing on the menstrual cycle, physiologic changes in pregnancy, and menopause. I'll be asking some open-ended questions, so feel free to pause and answer the questions yourself whenever possible. So to start out, reproductive physiology is controlled by the hypothalamic pituitary gonadal axis, which is a system of hormone signaling between a hypothalamus, the pituitary gland, and the gonads, which controls sexual development and reproduction. Gonadotropin-releasing hormone, or GnRH, is released by the hypothalamus, and when it reaches the anterior lobe of the pituitary gland, it stimulates gonadotrophs to release gonadotropin-releasing hormones, also called luteinizing hormone, or LH, and follicle-stimulating hormone, or FSH, into the blood. Puberty begins in females, usually between the ages of 10 and 14, when the tonic generator, which is part of the hypothalamus, begins secreting GnRH in pulses instead of in a steady state. These pulses of GnRH lead to pulsatile secretion of LH and FSH. LH starts being primarily released during REM sleep, but as puberty advances, both LH and FSH pulses become more frequent. The GnRH receptors in the anterior pituitary also become more sensitive to GnRH stimulation, so a small increase in GnRH leads to a large increase in FSH and LH levels. These changes lead to a high LH to FSH ratio and the stimulation of ovaries to release estrogen and progesterone. These, in turn, drive the development of secondary sexual characteristics and eventually begin the menstrual cycle. Speaking of the menstrual cycle, this refers to the cyclical hormone-driven changes of the ovaries and the endometrium that make reproduction possible. This begins at menarche, or the first menstrual period, and ends with menopause, with breaks during pregnancy. Of course, there are exceptions to this, such as pathologic abnormal uterine bleeding or lack of menstrual cycles secondary to contraception, but we're not going to go into that today. So each menstrual cycle begins on the first day of menstruation. The duration of a menstrual cycle is between 20 and 35 days, for an average of about 28 days. Now, why is this length variable? I want you to think on this, and we'll circle back to the answer shortly. The cycle is driven by the hypothalamus, the anterior pituitary, and the gonads, which secrete hormones that direct two synchronized processes in the ovary and the uterus. So starting out with the ovarian cycle, this cycle centers on the development of the ovarian follicles and ovulation. The follicular phase is estrogen dominant, and this phase can vary in length. This accounts for changes in the length of a menstrual cycle. During the follicular phase, GnRH from the hypothalamus reaches the anterior pituitary, which produces LH and FSH, and these act on the ovarian follicles. Each ovarian follicle is made up of a ring of granulosa and theca cells, which surround a primary oocyte at its core. The theca cells respond to LH by producing androstenedione, an androgen, 
and granulosa cells respond to FSH by producing the enzyme aromatase, which converts the androstenedione into 17-beta-estradiol, which is an estrogen. As the follicles grow and estrogen is released into the bloodstream, the increased estrogen levels act as a negative feedback signal to decrease FSH, and some of the developing follicles in the ovary stop growing, regress, and die off. The follicle that has the most FSH receptors continues to grow and becomes the dominant follicle that will eventually undergo ovulation. This dominant follicle continues to secrete estrogen, and the rising estrogen levels make the pituitary more responsive to the pulsatile actions of GnRH. Eventually, the estrogen becomes a positive feedback signal, leading to a large surge of LH and FSH. This LH surge triggers the rupture of the follicle and the release of the oocyte, which is called ovulation. At ovulation, the primary oocyte develops into a secondary oocyte, or the female gamete, which is released from the ovarian follicle and into the fallopian tube, where it can be fertilized by a sperm. Now, here's a patient scenario. A 19-year-old G0P0 female comes to the office due to concerns about cyclical lower abdominal pain. Pain occurs every month at about the same time, and she rates it a 4 out of 10 sharp, non-radiating pain. Today, her pain is in her right lower quadrant, but she states that a few weeks ago, it was actually in her left lower quadrant. She notes that the pain does not seem to coincide with her periods, because it usually occurs two weeks after her period ends. Her cycles are regular, and they last three to five days. What does this patient likely have? The answer here is middle schmartz. This is what we call pain at the mid-cycle during ovulation, which occurs due to peritoneal irritation, and this can actually mimic appendicitis. Now, back to the second part of the ovarian cycle. This is called the luteal phase. This phase is progesterone dominant, and it is a constant length, so this is always 14 days long. After ovulation, the remnants of the follicle becomes the corpus luteum. Luteinized theca cells produce progesterone, and luteinized granulosa cells produce inhibin. Together, these inhibit FSH and LH production, therefore reducing estrogen. Now, for a clinical question. What is one non-invasive way that we can track ovulation? The answer here is basal body temperature charting. This is based off the principle that higher progesterone after ovulation will actually raise the basal body temperature by about 0.5 degrees Fahrenheit. Now, if the follicle remains unfertilized, the corpus luteum degrades into the corpus albicans, leading to decreased estrogen and progesterone. This drop in progesterone triggers shedding of the endometrium, which we call menses. So this brings us to the synchronized process that occurs in the uterus. While the ovary is busy preparing an egg for ovulation, the uterus is preparing the endometrium for implantation and maintenance of pregnancy. The menstrual phase and the proliferative phases of the uterus coincide with the follicular phase of the ovaries. The menstrual phase takes place when the functional layer of the endometrium sheds. This starts on day one of the cycle and is triggered by the loss of progesterone when the corpus luteum becomes the corpus albicans. This phase lasts about five days. Next is the proliferative phase, during which the high estrogen levels from the ovary stimulates thickening of the endometrium, growth of the endometrial glands, and 
emergence of the spiral arteries from the basal layer to feed the growing functional endometrium, as well as changing the consistency of cervical mucus, which makes it more hospitable to incoming sperm. Clinical question here, what is the fertility window? The fertility window is within one day of ovulation. The combined effects of the spike in estrogen on the uterus and the cervix help to optimize the chance of fertilization, which is highest between day 11 and day 15 of an average 28-day cycle. Next up is the secretory phase. This coincides with the luteal phase of the ovaries because this is stimulated by high levels of progesterone. During this time, the spiral arteries grow the most and become coiled, and the uterine glands begin to secrete more mucus, which makes it no longer hospitable to sperm. When the corpus luteum degenerates into the non-functional corpus albicans, estrogen and progesterone levels slowly decrease. When progesterone reaches its lowest level, the spiral arteries collapse, and the functional layer of the endometrium prepares to shed through menstruation. Here's an important clinical correlation. How do contraceptives work? So contraceptives contain both exogenous estrogen and progestin, which inhibit the secretion of GnRH, LH, and FSH. The higher the dose of estrogen, the more they inhibit FSH, so ovarian follicles don't develop. The LH inhibition ensures that ovulation doesn't take place because there's no LH surge. For progestin-related contraceptives, these bind the progesterone receptors, causing a thinning of the endometrial lining so implantation can't occur, and they also cause thickening of the cervical mucus, making it harder for sperm to pass through. Now, let's say that sperm did fertilize the follicle during ovulation. There would be no menses, so the corpus luteum would not degenerate and progesterone would continue to remain high. This brings us to pregnancy. During pregnancy, steadily rising estrogen and progesterone levels lead to a number of anatomic and physiologic changes that occur throughout the body. According to nomenclature, we say that a pregnancy lasts about 40 weeks, or roughly 9 months, but that's actually from the last menstrual period, which is usually about 2 weeks before day 0 of ovulation or day 1 of fertilization. So if you're counting from day 0 when ovulation occurs, a pregnancy is actually only about 38 weeks. The reason for adding these extra two weeks is that women usually know the date of their last menstrual period, but have no way of knowing when they ovulated. Here's a clinical question for you. The 40 weeks of pregnancy are broken up into three trimesters. Do you know what weeks are represented in each of the three trimesters? So the first trimester is weeks one through week 13. The second trimester is week 14 to week 26, and the third trimester is week 27 to week 40, or whenever the baby is born. During the first trimester, hormones are mostly being generated by the corpus luteum, which is maintained by human chorionic gonadotropin, or HCG, produced by the trophoblast cells. Around week 9, HCG levels peak and then begin to fall off, which is a signal for the corpus luteum to finally start shriveling up. As the corpus luteum degenerates, the placenta takes over and specialized syncytiotrophoblast cells make progesterone and estriol, which is the most abundant type of estrogen during pregnancy. Now, onto the changes in a patient's body during pregnancy. First up is the circulatory system. 
Pregnancy is a high volume state because the circulating blood volume increases by 30 to 50%, which means that an average person will go from having 5 liters of blood to about 7.5 liters of blood by the third trimester. There's also an increase in red blood cells by about 20 to 30%. This disproportion between the increase in blood volume and the increase in red blood cells causes a physiologic anemia of pregnancy. When the hematocrit, which is the percentage of blood that's actually RBCs, goes down despite the total number of RBCs being increased. Now for a clinical question. What are some physiologic reasons that make this high volume state advantageous during pregnancy? Well, first of all, this allows mom to tolerate blood loss during delivery and the decreased viscosity of the blood increases placental perfusion. Next up, the high levels of progesterone during pregnancy not only helps maintain the pregnancy, but also causes smooth muscle dilation. This leads to a decrease in SVR, or the systemic vascular resistance, and a decreased afterload, while the high volume leads to an increase in preload. This combination acts to increase cardiac output. Now for a clinical question. What might you find on physical exam as a result of this high volume state? You could find a physiologic S3 heart murmur and a low blood pressure. Next up is the renal system. This increase in cardiac output means an increased amount of fluid going through the kidneys, which in turn increases GFR and increases urinary output. So, it's not just the pressure of an enlarging uterus that causes pregnant patients to have an increased urinary frequency. This high volume also causes the renal pelvises to dilate, causing physiologic hydronephrosis, and progesterone causes hypomotility of the ureters. This combination can result in urinary stasis, which increases the risk of a urinary tract infection. Here's a clinical question. How do we monitor and treat UTIs in pregnant patients? We use frequent urinary analyses and empiric treatment of asymptomatic bacteria with cephalexin, amoxicillin, nitrofurantoin, or phosphomycin. Next up in the pulmonary system, there is an increased tidal volume and an increased minute volume with no change in the respiratory rate during pregnancy. This is important because the decreased levels of CO2 in the blood improve gas exchange across the placenta. Question. This decreased CO2 due to an increased ventilation causes what kind of acid-base disturbance? Respiratory alkalosis, that's right. Moving on to the gastrointestinal system. High levels of beta-HCG can cause nausea and vomiting, while high levels of progesterone relax the lower esophageal sphincter, leading to gastric reflux and heartburn. Question. High levels of beta-HCG is associated with what kind of pregnancy? We typically think of these in molar pregnancies. They have high levels of beta-HCG, and this may actually lead to hyperemesis gravidarum, which is a severe form of morning sickness that may require hospitalization due to extreme dehydration. Now, to go back to the blood. Pregnancy is a hypercoagulable state. This is due to the increased estrogen, stimulating the liver to produce increased clotting factors like fibrinogen while decreasing anti-clotting factors like anti-thrombin-3 and proteins C and S. 
High estrogen also increases the thyroid binding globulin, which raises the total T3 and T4. However, pregnancy is a euthyroid state because the free T3 and T4 in the blood is normal. Relaxation of the joints and ligaments, which accommodate the enlarging uterus and aid in the passage of baby through the birth canal, may cause joint pain and muscle pain throughout pregnancy. Lastly, the placenta produces another hormone called human placental lactogen, or HPL. This counters the effects of maternal insulin to help ensure that there's plenty of glucose available for the blood to the fetus. Question, what occurs if maternal pancreatic function cannot overcome this increased insulin resistance? The answer here is gestational diabetes. Next up, we're going to talk about what happens at the end of pregnancy. Parturition, also called labor, this describes the hard work of delivering a fetus that typically occurs between 37 and 42 weeks after the last menstrual period. The exact mechanism underlying the start of labor is unclear still, but the mechanical changes such as rupturing of the amniotic sac and fetal head engagement, combined with hormonal changes such as high cortisol, high estrogen to progesterone ratio, prostaglandins, and oxytocin all play a role in this process. First up, the high estrogen to progesterone ratio is important because estrogen increases uterine contractility, whereas progesterone decreases it. Prostaglandins contribute to the effacement or the thinning and the dilation of the cervix during the first stage of labor. They also increase intracellular calcium and promote gap junction formation, both of which allow for strong, synchronous contractions of the uterus during labor. Oxytocin is a powerful stimulant of uterine contractions, and there is a positive feedback loop where dilation of the cervix increases oxytocin, which increases contractions, which pull on the thick tissues of the cervix, causing further dilation. Now, after delivery of the placenta in stage three of labor, estrogen and progesterone levels drop, which finally makes lactation possible. We'll get to that next, but first, here's a patient scenario. A 28-year-old G1P1 female comes to the office for her six-week postpartum visit and talks about concerns with her milk supply. Despite attempts to breastfeed and pump, her milk supply remains very low, so she has begun feeding her son with mostly formula. She has been very tired and weak, but attributes this to her complications at birth that required a blood transfusion and the demands of caring for a newborn. Her period has not restarted postpartum despite not using any contraception. What may be causing her symptoms? The answer here is Sheehan syndrome. Estrogen causes hyperplasia of lactotrophs during pregnancy, but the vascular supply remains unchanged. Significant blood loss during labor can lead to ischemic necrosis of the pituitary gland, causing hypopituitarism. The lack of prolactin leads to no milk production. The lack of FSH and LH leads to no menstruation, and the lack of TSH causes hypothyroid-like symptoms with fatigue and cold intolerance. Next up, we'll be talking about lactation. So what is the difference between milk production and milk letdown? Milk production actually starts during pregnancy as the placenta releases HPL and progesterone and the anterior pituitary releases prolactin. 
All of these hormones stimulate the growth of glandular tissue and prepare alveolar cells to produce milk. While prolactin stimulates milk production, progesterone prevents that from happening during pregnancy. So by mid-pregnancy, the breasts are capable of making milk, but they don't release it because of the progesterone. However, after delivery of the placenta, when estrogen and progesterone levels fall precipitously, this decreases the inhibition of prolactin and milk production begins. Milk letdown is a separate process that's stimulated by mechanoreceptors and oxytocin. Mechanoreceptors in the nipple sense the stimulation of the baby suckling and send a signal via intercostal nerves to the dorsal root ganglion and then via the spinal cord to the hypothalamus. When the hypothalamus gets that signal, two things happen. First, the hypothalamus blocks prolactin inhibiting neurons from releasing dopamine. This allows anterior pituitary cells to make prolactin. Second, the hypothalamus stimulates hypothalamic paraventricular cells to produce oxytocin, which is sent down the pituitary stalk to the posterior pituitary where it's released. Clinical question here, what medications can interrupt breastfeeding? Dopamine agonists such as bromocryptine, which is used in the treatment of prolactinomas, inhibit prolactin secretion by increasing dopamine. So for lactation to occur, we need both the combination of prolactin and oxytocin. Prolactin stimulates alveolar milk production, and oxytocin causes the myoepithelial cells to contract and push the milk out of the ducts, which is the process known as milk letdown. The first few months of breastfeeding after delivery is largely driven by prolactin. However, after the first few months, breastfeeding becomes more of a mechanically based system where mom's body produces the amount it needs to replace what was taken by the infant. This kind of comes up as a supply and demand problem. The most critical thing to establishing a long-term supply of breast milk during this time is allowing the baby to frequently empty the breasts fully because this stimulates the glandular tissue to make more milk. However, it's important to note that breastfeeding isn't easy. Ultimately, the most important thing for baby is to be fed and cared for by a happy, healthy mom, so supplementation with formula is an important option for parents. Question, what is natural birth control postpartum? The high levels of prolactin inhibit GnRH release, leading to low FSH and LH, which means there's no ovulation and no menstruation. This occurs during breastfeeding, but this method is not 100% effective, so patients should always have a backup method of contraception. Next up, we'll be moving on to menopause. A patient enters menopause when they have not had a menstrual cycle for one year. This usually occurs around age 50 and it's preceded by a couple years of hormonal and physical changes called perimenopause. An ovary starts with about 4 million oocytes, but only about 400 of those ever become mature enough to become fertilized. During each menstrual cycle, a couple of follicles are stimulated by FSH and LH until one becomes a dominant follicle, ruptures it of ovulation, and the rest of them degenerate. Over time, so many ovarian follicles degenerate and the ones that remain become less and less sensitive to FSH and LH. This goes on until menopause, when there's no remaining follicles to respond to FSH and LH, which causes menstrual cycles to stop entirely. During perimenopause, the ovaries have a lot less functional follicles, so the menstrual cycles preceding menopause are often anovulatory. 
This means that none of the follicles are responsive enough to FSH and LH to stimulate, mature, and release the oocyte at ovulation. This lack of ovulation can cause missed or irregular periods until they stop entirely at menopause. Question, what lab values would you expect during menopause? The answer here is low estrogen with high FSH. This is due to the loss of negative feedback. When estrogen is low because of the lack of follicles, there's no negative feedback, so FSH is high. This loss of estrogen during menopause leads to the several typical findings that we think of, such as hot flashes, night sweats, vaginal atrophy leading to dyspareunia, and mood lability. Question, what are two diagnostic tests that are important for patients after menopause and why? The question here is, comes from the fact that estrogen has protective effects on the cardiovascular system and it helps sustain bone density. For this reason, loss of estrogen after menopause puts patients at higher risk for cardiovascular disease and osteoporosis. So, patients should have their LDL cholesterol levels checked around age 50 and a DEXA scan for osteoporosis starting at age 65. Now, to summarize everything. The reproductive physiology is controlled by hormones released from the hypothalamic pituitary gonadal axis. Puberty is initiated by pulsatile secretion of GnRH, leading to secondary sexual characteristics and menarche. The menstrual cycle is a 28-day cycle consisting of a follicular phase, that's estrogen predominant, ovulation, which is stimulated by an LH surge, and a luteal phase that is progesterone dominant. Physiologic changes during pregnancy are numerous. The rise in progesterone and estrogen, among other hormones, cause increased blood volume, increased urinary output, respiratory alkalosis, hypercoagulability, nausea, vomiting, the loosening of ligaments, and so much more. Oxytocin and prolactin are the cornerstone of lactation. Prolactin stimulates milk production, while oxytocin makes the muscle cells contract and push milk out of the breast during breastfeeding, a process known as milk letdown. Menopause is a cessation of menstrual cycles caused by a decreased number of functioning ovarian follicles. This is characterized by decreased estrogen while circulating levels of LH and FSH increase. That's all for today. Thank you so much for listening. If you found this episode helpful, please subscribe to our podcast. If you have any questions, comments, concerns, visit our website at spoonfulofsugar.org and post them under the link for this episode. Good luck with studying. And remember that if you ever have an SOS moment while studying, Spoonful of Sugar is always here to help the medicine go down. <laughs>